This is the Mahabharata Podcast, episode 36, Bhima and the Snake. Last time, we covered the adventures of the Pandavas before they met up with Arjun, and then Arjun arrived, and then Arjun told us about his battle with the Asuras in spacesuits. Aside from the minor incident with Jatasura, the rest of the stories seem to be a strange remix of stories we have heard before. It is pretty hard to believe that Bhima went off in search of flowers two times in a row, and both times managed to make a mess out of Kubera's gardens. My guess is that we're actually seeing two versions of the same story, but both were too good to choose just one or the other. In the first adventure, Bhima got to meet Hanuman and hear about the Ramayana and the Yugas. The second version, which we covered last episode, generally made more sense than the first, and it ends with Arjun's return. I suspect that they were both too good to leave out, so they are just placed next to each other in the book. Way back in the early episodes, I talked a little about the physical nature of ancient Indian bookbinding. They were typically handwritten on leaves, which were bound together with a single loop of string. That might explain the linguistic relationship between the Latin word suture and the Sanskrit word sutra. A book as enormous as the Mahabharata must have been very difficult to maintain in a library. There would have been about 100 volumes, and each volume was held together by a single thread. It is easy to imagine at some point an ancient librarian found a volume missing, or pages disintegrated, or eaten by a goat. Perhaps this enterprising librarian, not wanting to take the heat for losing a piece of the ancient manuscript, recomposed the story from memory, with embellishments. In my imagination, I picture some later archivist copying a new edition and working off of two older versions, one having one version of Bema's quest, while the other had the made-up version. I picture this guy reading both versions and having to decide which one to use in his new copy. In this case, he decided it was better to hold on to both versions. It is likely that this is one reason for the enormous size of the epic. No one had the heart to leave anything out. As for the reasons why these stories are related to the tale of the five Indras, or why Arjun's battle with the Niva Takavakas is so similar to Krishna's battle with Shalva, I doubt we'll ever know. Of course, buried there among all these recycled stories is the important news that Arjun is finally back and reunited with his brothers. As I mentioned last time, following this reunion, the Pandavas remained up in the mountains another four years, thus rounding out their tenth year in exile. Even though their campground was on the outskirts of paradise, Bhima had spent those years staring at Arjun's pile of weapons and dreaming of revenge. After the tenth year had passed, Bhima became too restless to stay any longer. Yudhishthira figured it would be a good time to start working on their hiding place for the thirteenth year, so he and the rest began making the long trek south back to India. The party retraced their steps, flying with Gatokacha at times. They made their way back to King Subahu, who had cared for their cooks and servants while they journeyed north. The enlarged party then continued onward until they reached the slopes of Mount Yamuna. Still with plenty of time to kill, they settled down here for a while. Bhima used the downtime to do some hunting. As he wandered the countryside, slaughtering the forest creatures, he came across a gigantic snake. The snake was big, but not big enough to be a threat to Bhima. So the hero got a little too close, and the snake pounced, coiling around Bhima's arms, pinning him down. What Bhima hadn't realized was that this was a magic snake, and anyone who got in its grasp was instantly rendered paralyzed. Bhima was still able to speak, so he introduced himself to the snake and asked the snake what kind of trick it used to capture the killer of countless rakshasas so easily. The snake gasped and hissed in private delight. He said, How lucky that the gods sent me such a fat specimen when I was starving. Since you have obligingly volunteered to be my supper, I'll tell you my story. I wasn't always a snake. I ticked off some sages and they cursed me to live in this condition. The snake declared that he had once been the ascetic king Nahusha, 
who also happened to be one of Bhima's ancestors. It turned out that Nahusha was the son of Ayu, the fifth monarch of the Lunar Dynasty. He had been a devoted king in those ancient days, and through study and austerities, he had total command of the Vedas. Through his power and merit, Nahusha became a world emperor. In his pride, he hired only Brahmins to carry out even the most menial tasks. One day, he was out riding in a litter carried by a thousand Brahmins, and he jogged by the sage Agastya. You'll recall that Agastya was an irritable fellow. He cursed Kubera and Manamat, and earlier we heard the story of how he ate and digested the demon Vatapi. Well, Agastya didn't take kindly to the spectacle of so many Brahmins debased in this way, so he laid a curse on King Nahusha, turning him into a giant hungry snake. The king accepted his punishment, but asked the sage when he might be set free from the curse. Agastya said the spell would only be lifted if someone could answer certain questions correctly. As for the trick he used to capture Bhima, the snake said that the Brahmins had taken pity on him and had allowed that, on every sixth attempt at catching food, he would always succeed, no matter how strong the prey. Bhima consoled his captor. He said, don't worry about me. Many factors in one's life are out of our control. Since I cannot escape, I accept my fate. I only regret that I cannot help my brothers to recover what was taken from them, and that my young brothers will lose their protector, and my mother will never see me victorious over my enemies. Other than that, though, I'm okay with it. Meanwhile, back at the camp, Yudhishthira had a bad sense of foreboding. He heard a jackal in the distance and saw a one-eyed, one-winged, one-footed quail spit blood. A hot, dry wind blew up from the south and his right arm started to ache. He went to Draupadi and asked, Where's Bhima? Draupadi always knew where Bhima was, so she told him Bhima had gone hunting. Taking charge, Yudhishthira ordered Arjun to protect Draupadi and sent the twins to the Brahmins and then set out on his own to find Bhima. Finding Bhima wasn't so difficult, because he had a habit of knocking down trees and trampling wildlife wherever he went. So the king followed the trail of destruction until he came upon his brother, encoiled by the giant snake. I guess the snake was in no great hurry, because it allowed Yudhishthira to ask Bhima how he got in this trouble, and Bhima replied with the whole story of Nahusha. Yudhishthira then addressed the snake, saying, Ask what you please, snake, and I shall give the answers if I can. The snake asked, Who is a Brahmin? The king replied, he is a Brahmin in whom truthfulness, patience, self-control, and compassion are found. A true Brahmin may gain knowledge of the Supreme Brahman beyond happiness and unhappiness, after which they grieve no more. The snake objected, If you judge a Brahmin by his conduct, then birth has no meaning. Yudhishthira then pointed out that in this confused, topsy-turvy world, you can't really be sure who anyone's real parents were, so all one could go by was whether one acted like their purported caste. The snake was delighted with Yudhishthira's answer and said, You are truly a wise man. How could I devour your brother now? Yudhishthira realized that the snake was no slouch either, so he asked some questions that had been bothering him lately. King Dharma asked him, How should one perceive the rewards of heaven, and what is the significance of one's actions while embodied in this lifetime? The snake answered, There are three ways one can go as a result of one's own actions. These three are human birth, time in heaven, or birth as an animal. The snake went on to explain that one attains heaven by acts of charity and good intentions. One is reborn as an animal if one is controlled by anger, is violent, or greedy. Animals eventually are reborn as humans. Cows and horses became deities in the next life, presumably for their good service to men. Yudhishthira then wanted to know more about the soul. He wondered, if the soul is everywhere and pervades all things, 
then how does it focus on the actions of a single being? How is it that an infinite can embody a finite creature? The snake said, when the soul substance has taken possession of a body, it enjoys the experiences of the body's senses. It is by means of the mind that the soul is able to focus its attention to the embodied individual and limit awareness to the body's senses. The soul is lodged between the eyebrows and from there initiates awareness out to the various objects. After awareness follows experience. The snake asked Yudhishthira what he thought was the nature of the soul. Yudhishthira was so excited to talk with this sage snake that he apparently forgot his brother had nearly been killed. He said, You are truly a great soul. Why would you ask me what I think about this? And how did you fall so low as to become a snake? The snake replied, No matter how wise or strong you may be, wealth will confound you. I was drunk with power and thus I fell, but now you have lifted a grievous curse with your wise conversation. Back when I used to cruise around in heaven in my Brahmin mobile, I was so full of pride that I thought of no one else. I had a thousand Brahmins carrying me around. One time Agastya was busy carrying me and I kicked him with my foot. That was what caused my downfall. As I fell to the ground, I begged him to put a limit on my time as a snake. And he said, Yudhishthira, the Dharma Raja shall free you from your curse. The snake released Bhima, thanked the brothers, and then shed his snake body while his soul ascended to heaven. The brothers then returned to the camp and told them all what had happened. Draupadi was delighted that her husband had been rescued, but the Brahmins at the camp lectured Bhima, telling him he should not have been hunting and causing so much destruction in the first place. The Brahmins were never happy to see their patrons out killing God's creatures. The group then moved on to the banks of the Sarasvati River, by whose cool waters they spent the summer. With the cooler weather of autumn, the party once again moved, this time heading back to the Kanyaka Forest. The Kanyaka Forest is the place where the Pandavas began their exile, and not long after settling down, Krishna showed up, riding in his chariot and accompanied by his number one wife, Satyabhama. Krishna expressed his joy that Arjun had accomplished his mission and once again complained about how the Kauravas had stolen their birthright. Krishna then turned to Draupadi to give her news of her sons. Considering that the boys had been sent to live with Krishna at the start of the exile, and that the exile had lasted over ten years, these boys must have been teenagers by this time. Krishna assured her that he, Satyabhama, and Rukmini treated them as if they were their own children. Krishna's heroic son Pradyumna was their elder brother and mentor, and together they were all studying warfare. Furthermore, King Drupad had endowed each of his grandsons with their own lands and titles. Krishna then once again pledged his help to recover Hastinapur, once the time was ripe. This time, Krishna stayed a while with the Pandavas in their camp. And while he was there, they were visited by the sages Markandeya and Narada. I'm going to stop here for now, because Markandeya has a lot of philosophy and even more stories to tell, so we'll start in on that next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>